Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to another Word in Your Ear uh, with uh, David Remnick, who's the editor of The New Yorker, and also probably, well, he's the only, definitely the only guest we've had in Word in Your Ear uh, who can actually boast a Pulitzer Prize uh, to his name. But we won't get into that. Today we're going to talk about pop music <laughs> because he's also a bit of a music fan, as you can see in his new book, Holding the Note, Writing on Music, which is a collection of uh, writings about interviews with the likes of Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, Mavis Staples, um, Patti Smith, Aretha Franklin, and somebody called Bob Dylan. Uh, so, David, welcome. Um, now, you're a New Jersey boy. I am. I am. Born and so, bred. Deepest well, darkest. So, so that's supposed to have musical implications, isn't it, uh, <laughs> nowadays? Tell us about your, your musical upbringing in the 50s and 60s in uh, New well, Jersey. Well, not the 50s. You're, you're aging me too quickly. Oh, okay, right, the 60s. Right, when so I was seven. born in 58. I'm 64 now. Oh, okay, right. When I'm, when I'm 64. <laughs> what am my musical background? Well, I owe a lot to my parents, particularly my father, who was a, a jazz fanatic and more importantly, at least for me, is that he was very, we didn't have much money, but he was very eager for me to listen to and even occasionally see people I can now look back on with unbelievable gratitude that I had the opportunity. I saw Louis Armstrong play the trumpet. So did I. Yeah, of course. Dizzy Gillespie. I heard Ella Fitzgerald. You know, that's a gift. Yeah. You know, And so when I... When my kids were younger, they're now in their early 30s, and I dragged them to see, you know, uh, the 
Cream revival or uh, Dylan a lot of times or or whatever the people of that generation. Let's just say their enthusiasm was not always um, immediate. <laughs> I, I I was going to ask that question actually. Yeah, and you know we could we could converge on certain things like Radiohead or something like that. Um, and s- but but they didn't want me along for the ride when they went to go see hip hop performers. And no, I would imagine I knew less about, but I, I you know I try to learn more and more um, and have over the years. But I I. It's very pleasing that they were, in the way that I was so grateful to have seen Ella Fitzgerald when I was, you know, 12 or something like that. They now grudgingly, maybe grudgingly tell me they were happy to have seen, uh, you know, these older acts. Do you think it's also the case that, you know, a lot of the names that I read out earlier uh, those uh, those names have become more venerable in the last twenty years, haven't they? More generally acceptable to to the, to younger people. Is that fair to say? Do you think? Remember, in, with the history of rock and roll, nobody thought it would last very long. You know that it would be an ephemera. You know, like um, any number of other things in pop culture that come and go and have the the, the life of a mayfly. So when when Ike Turner started playing rock and roll and then Elvis and more to the point, little Richard, who's getting his due finally, 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 and things like documentaries or, uh, then you had this second generation. And that's what this book is largely about. Cause it's not about directly about Chuck Berry or little Richard, that generation. It's about that second generation. It's about the Beatles and the stones and, uh, Aretha, People who um, themselves, you know, uh, often came from other things. You know, look at the Stones. The Stones were a, a blues bar band until they developed into something slightly different in concert with their times. Um, so that, that's that's what the book is about. It's about a kind of personal appreciation of a certain generation that's still hanging on, and then secondarily, it's about you know, it won't happen to me or you because we exercise so much and drink pomegranate juice, but it's about mortality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, you are you are dealing with the kind of, I suppose, the, the third act, as, the, as it might be put. Or the, the fifth act in a fifth five-act play. I mean, a, a lot of, some of these people I wrote about in a year later or two, they were gone. Uh, Leonard Cohen, who might be the most eloquent uh, cultural figure of any kind I've ever had the honor to talk with was gone within a matter of months. He died. Maybe it was great fortune for him. He died the day that Donald Trump was elected. When I, when I, when I went to see him in Los Angeles, he knew he was dying. That that's what the exercise was about. That's, that's what the, and we never left his house. He, He couldn't, he was sitting in a medical chair in his rather modest home in central Los Angeles. And he had lived a life and he knew it was ending. And he was incredibly um, penetrating about that. You you have uh, one particular experience with uh, Leonard Cohen that you were candid enough to, uh, to share in the book, which I very much enjoyed, which is 
being on the uh, on the end of a, of a ticking off from Leonard Cohen, which I think you ought to tell people about. I'm not sure I understand the the. Well, didn't you get you get um, you got told off for being? Oh, I, got, I did, I did, <laughs> ticking off. Right. So here's what happened. Um, in college, I knew a guy named Bob Fagan, who eventually became a college professor in California, Claremont McKenna. Terrific, terrific scholar and a wonderful guy. And one night, in a somewhat altered state, um, he was in a grocery store and he met a guy in, in Buddhist robes who was also in a somewhat altered state, shopping for the kind of thing you do when you're in that state, donuts, cold cuts, whatever you can eat. And they, they met each other and they became fast friends, Leonard Cohen and my friend Bob Fagan. And Bob then started to go see Leonard Cohen two, three, four times a week just to talk. It was a meeting of the minds. It was that thing that, that rarely happens in later in life, particularly among men, maybe. I don't want to generalize, but that seems to me the case, is that you make a new friend. That doesn't happen that often. And at one point, very shyly, Bob said, do you want to meet Leonard Cohen? And of course I did. And I came out to Los Angeles and I met him. And then I raised the idea of doing this piece, which Leonard was more reluctant to do, but eventually agreed to. Anyway, we I came out to Los Angeles, you know, with the tape recorder and the whole apparatus. And we had a very wonderful long day of talking. And then I said, we'll see you tomorrow. And we started again. And then he wanted to take a break. And I said, well, when should we come back? And he said, two o'clock or so I thought. We came back at two o'clock. Apparently he had said one, something like that. And he was absolutely furious. He thought, and he, he just, he lost his temper. You have to understand, contrast it with how he usually talks, which is incredibly eloquent, decorous, courteous, kind, constantly like my mother offering you food. Would you like some gefilte fish? Would you like a bagel? Would you like a hamburger? Whatever. I mean, incredibly solicitous. I don't think, you know, for all their great qualities, I don't think, you know, Bob Dylan is offering you gefilte fish very often <laughs> or, or anything. Um, Leonard is just this, was this incredibly warm person, but I pissed him off. Robert and I had fucked up the time in some way. And for about 20 minutes, which seemed like four and a half hours, oh, he went off. And he even at one point said, this is like elder abuse. And I thought, oh, my God, here's this guy who's dying of leukemia and other, other things. And he's accusing us of this. And it, it just finally it settled down and he returned to his normal self. But it was chilling. And I think normally most people, if that happened, would not put it in the piece. <laughs> I, I salute you for having done so. It would really... be too embarrassing, humiliating. I really felt shamed um, the way I would if I had, you know, abused the patients or worse of my own parents. But, but I suppose also there's another... This is life. This is, this is that, and if these pieces are going to be about life... Um, that's that's a that's a texture that should be there. Sure, sure. Is there always also the case because these these are musicians, 
And therefore, you tend to, particularly if you meet somebody legendary like Bob Dylan or whatever, you, you retreat into being the 15-year-old who was first impressed by them. And, and you kind of want them to like you. Do you, do you, do you ever feel you know, that? I'm going to be honest. I hope, I've been at this for a long time. I've been, you know, and there are, of course, people I've interviewed whom I admire and people who I loathe to be, if I'm going to be honest about it. I don't think the job in the room is to be liked. I, I, I want to be liked and, and more by my friends and colleagues and family. Um, I, I, I'm not there to be liked. I am there, however, to observe and extract what I can. And here, and this is the complicated bit. So that demands sometimes different things with different people. Right. Some people, the best thing to do when interviewing them is to shut up. Because very often you listen to the tape recorder of your own interview and you realize you're doing exactly what you're describing, which is to say that you're talking too much in a puppyish way to get them to see I, see. I know so much about you or I know so much about music. Well, they don't care. So you try to do what works. A.J. Liebling, a very great writer for The New Yorker in the 40s and the 50s, would begin his interviews in the style of classical psychoanalysis. He would sit down, he would look at the other person and not say anything. <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. If it works. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. No, and Dylan, and I didn't interview Dylan. I, I wrote a long essay on this thing. I, I keep getting, for years I've been getting the word back from Jeff Rosen, who's kind of Bob's guy, that Bob is post-interview. And, I'll, <laughs> and I'll, I'll grudgingly say, okay, I don't know. But then there'll be another interview that pops up with yes. you know, <laughs> Lethem or Doug Brinkley or you know, something. So... I've struck out, I, you know, when, when it comes to Bob. Bruce is another matter. No, well, Bruce just likes talking, doesn't he, really? He, he eventually he, did in his life, and he also became, you know, he's been around so long that you can see how he's changed not only in his music, but also in his conversation. Yeah. You know, he's an autodidact. He's a guy that... Um, I think he lasted for 10 minutes in college and he was a bar band musician in New Jersey and a damn good one. And his education was at the, on the bandstand. And, but over the years, he's, he's really, um, he's a very smart guy. And since that time, he's seen a lot, read a lot, traveled a lot. And he's an awfully intelligent person to talk to about his own life life you know um i have a, an enormous respect for him yeah you say you've got a very good line here say so you're talking about mavis staples yeah you say she's a canny retailer canny retailer of her own story yeah I like that Go like on. like a lot of us uh, you know are you, are you married or you, you have a yeah, part oh yes yes okay so i'm sure you've had the experience when you're at dinner with people and you start to tell a story 
And your wife looks down the table. Like, I have to hear that one again. We all have a collection of anecdotes that are a little polished over time. Um, true and maybe truer than truth sometimes. They get better in the telling. Mavis knows how to do this and with an enormous charm. Um, and they're good stories. And they're stories that indicate a lot about her life or about racism or about music or what have you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But um, she doesn't, unlike Leonard Cohen, she doesn't go very often outside of that collection of anecdotes. Some of them possibly because they're so painful. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Mavis Staples story that I wrote is a story about a family, Staples singers, and everybody's gone. You're the last one standing. And, you know, the father's gone, who was the center of the band. One of the sisters committed suicide long ago. And everybody else is gone, often with a, a long period of Alzheimer's uh, beforehand. And so, and she projects this very um, jolly, happy presence on stage and even in life. She's an incredibly generous person. But there's immense pain there. Pain that normally comes out in her voice, in, in, in singing. 
Are these all people who need to be on stage? I mean, they, they, most of them have made quite sufficient money. They don't need to do it any longer, but they're still out there. I mean, Bob Dylan's announced more touring. What is I it, just saw that. Coming around here in November, I'm getting my tickets, you know. Here's a guy who I, I think it's true that his first number one record was done when, in his 80s. Oh, possibly, yeah, that might right? might well be true, <laughs> yes. I mean, in the modern way of accounting. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, look at Springsteen. Springsteen said, um, I had to learn two incredible things. I had to, to, to know what to do with my guitar, and I had to learn how to put it down. In other words, there were periods in his life where the only thing he could do and the only way that he could hold off the demons, at least for a few hours, was to not only play, but to play in a way that was so thoroughly exhausting that it, it, it purged whatever was eating at him, if only for a few hours. Because he, had no, he hadn't figured out how to live as an adult quite fully. That came later. And he's very frank about this. Problems with depression, problems with family legacy and all the rest. He's very, very frank about that to, to, you know, and I'm proud to say, you know, as a journalist that he was very frank about the depression stuff with me in that piece. And he was then in his early sixties. Now he's in his early seventies before he published born to run the, the, I think really excellent. One of the better music mm. memoirs I've read and I, and I eat and I read them all. I mean, it's like, <laughs> really? like eating candy for me. Um, and, I've become an aficionado, and even and books by that are ghosted by David Ritz. Um, right. <laughs> yes. He's fantastic at it. You read you read a good piece here about the Keith Richards book. So <laughs> that book. <laughs> so Keith Richard, that book is splendid. Um, how much of it is Keith doing this? I think I'll skip that subject. He found the ideal ghost writer who wrote White Mischief to capture that. He, he learned how to throw Keith's voice. Because if you hear Keith being interviewed, this is not Leonard Cohen. It's a <laughs> lot of coughing and a lot of, you know, this is not eloquence in the standard sense. Not that he's not an intelligent person. He deeply is. But in order to get that prose voice, you, you, you needed uh, help. Yeah. Um, and it's an incredibly funny book. And, you know, I'm pro Stones, but also you have to look at the Stones both as a great rock and roll band, especially at a certain period of time, and a corporation, an ongoing business enterprise. You know, the Beatles, the Beatles were finished by 1970. Yeah, 50 years ago, 53 years ago, the Stones, I, I think they just had a record come out this week. They did a press conference in London last week. Where the funny the thing was... A single called Angry? Yes, oh, and they it. had Jimmy Fallon effectively doing impressions of Keith Richards. So Keith Richards doesn't actually have to be Keith Richards. He just employs Jimmy I, Fallon I, to be him. I, it was hilarious. I saw it. <laughs> this is what we come to. <laughs> so, here's the thing go on it, it, it doesn't matter the Stones did what the Stones did between a certain period of time 
and they haven't really been as a recording band or a songwriting band interesting in let's be generous uh, I guess there's a song or two after some girls but not much no, not much so but they're fun to go see right for yeah. eight bazillion dollars um they're not they didn't develop they didn't there's nothing in the stones what's interesting about Yes, it's absolutely true that for Springsteen, there's that period of uh, Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town and Nebraska and the River and so on. That, that's the core of something. But there's also really interesting, fun, complicated stuff after that till this very day. Same with Dylan. That's unusual. Yeah. That's really unusual. In any, in any kind of artistic life, there's usually an apprenticeship, a period of peak, of peak uh, originality, if you're lucky, it's like lightning striking. And then there's a period of self-imitation and playing out the string and then decline. That's, that's the normal pattern for a novelist. Um, for some of these guys, um, guys and, and, and women as well, obviously, uh, they break the mold just as Verdi did and uh, Titian and some, some exceptions in the history of art. One of the things I like about your book is that I'm a great believer in with re- musical stars that what you want to do is not so much listen to them as look at them. You want to observe them. And you've got, you got two splendid pieces of observation. The observation of Aretha Franklin and her handbag during the concerts. Oh, oh so touching. <laughs> So I, I went to see Aretha at some really cheesy casino and just across the border from Detroit in Canada. And she comes out and in an evening gown, it's a kind of pickup orchestra, a union orchestra that she slapped together and, uh, in, on the site. And she's got the handbag and she puts it on the piano. Well, why does she do that? Why does she do that? because it's filled with cash and her payment for the performance. And she doesn't trust anybody <laughs> backstage and we're laughing, but this has roots oh, absolutely. back in the day yeah. of people getting ripped off and not getting paid. Very often performers, usually black performers mm-hmm. would get hired by promoters. The show would be over and say, where's the money? And they'd say, oh, we, we, you know, they come up with some bullshit excuse and they get ripped off. Yeah. It's the same reason Chuck Berry, in his time, would travel from town to town. Not, he didn't travel with a band. Usually he would travel from town to town, and there'd be a pickup band, you know, a drummer, a bass player, another guitar player, maybe a keyboard player. And they would ask him, and Bruce Springsteen had this experience as a young guy. He said, well, what are we going to play? And Chuck Berry would say, we're going to play Chuck Berry songs. Yeah. And if you were in a band at that time and you didn't know how to play Roll Over Beethoven and Johnny B. Good and all the rest, who the hell were you? And he would have a guitar case, they'd fill the guitar case with cash, lock it away, off he'd go. Yeah. But, you know, it, it sounds funny, but it came from a legacy of racism and ripoff. I'm sure. I just, uh, if the audience had only known, they wouldn't have been able to take their hand, their eyes off the handbag, would they, throughout yeah. that? She has a, another a cool move that she did. She did at the Kennedy Center Honors famously is that she'd come out in a mink stole or a mink coat. And at the, and 
right at the bridge, right at the, as the moment where maybe there's a key change and it's going to go up and the drama of the song is going to increase, she throws off the mink and the mink falls to the floor. Well, a lot of white people in the audience see that and they go, oh my God, I've never seen that before. It's amazing. That's a classic gospel move, right? By Mahalia Jackson and people like that. It's a classic move. This, it just is the James Brown falling in a faint and being revived, play, just play one more chorus. That, that's a, you know, these are show business moves with a, with a pedigree. Yeah. The other piece of observation, and there are many, obviously, throughout the book, but the other piece, I couldn't help thinking uh, that uh, when you spotted Paul McCartney had a hearing aid, <laughs> I thought, surely, what's greatest, the Pulitzer Prize or being the first one to spot that Paul McCartney wore a hearing aid? Here's the, here's the obvious thing. These guys, are they're all a little deaf. I'm 64. It's not like I've lived the rock and roll life. Do I hear as well as I did 10, 15 years ago? I do not. And Paul's 80, and he sat down in one of our interviews, and he sat down, plop in the couch, and out popped the little hearing aid. I don't think he was thrilled with me for pointing out this little thing, but he ain't alone. He's been standing in front of amplifiers that at top volume for, since he's 15 years old. They're all deaf. All these guys are a little deaf. <laughs> Some of them, intel smartly, have been wearing these, uh, what do you call them, ear-in things. In-ear. In-ear things, so they can modulate yeah. the sound and yeah. they're not standing yeah. in front of big monitors and stuff. But, you know, there's walls and walls of amplifiers. They've been spending hours and hours of almost every day of their adult lives, you know, with Born to Run playing at top volume. So let's just finish with Bob Dylan, which, as you say, you've not interviewed. Would you still like to, or do you, sure. feel, that, do you feel that Bob Dylan has said everything he's ever going to say? No. No. Okay. Would he, he confronts the, you know, his, his one of the side studies of Dylan beyond the music is these interviews. You know, you've seen these collections. Jonathan Cott has yeah, a collection yeah. of them, and then there was a more recent one of various interviews. They're never boring. Sometimes <laughs> full of baloney. Early on, he would tell interviewers that, you know, he was a child hustler and a male prostitute. You know, he was trying to create... It was either deflection or mythology, self-mythologizing, or just aggravation with stupid questions. One of the best interviews I've ever read with him, and I, I tell your listeners and, and, and viewers, and by the way, to your viewers, I'm terribly sorry for the lighting in which I look at his YouTube like I've just crawled out of a coffin, um, uh, which, you know, may, may, be, <laughs> may be the case. But um, his, one of the best interviewers, interviews he ever did was for the AARP, oh, Medicine, yes, yes. the American Association of Retired People, which is, you know, normally talking about, you know, medical issues, shall we say. But you know why it was great? Because it was all about music. It was all about songs. And he, he likes that. It's when you ask him about being a voice of the generation, yeah, sure. politics, and what does he think about Obama or Trump, that he gets squirrely. So, no, fair enough. Well, I, inter I interviewed him f nearly 40 years ago and he took a break during the interview and the PR asked him how it was going. He says, he keeps asking me questions. 
<laughs> Which I, I think is quite profound, really. <laughs> no, I, I seriously do, because I think... We was he, was what, he elusive with you? But it was a classic case of <laughs> you have to listen to what it is that they say rather than seek the response to the question that was on your sheet of paper. Yeah. And it's, it's very difficult to do, particularly when it's Bob Dylan or yeah. anybody like that. And, um, you know, he was, he, was, he was not at his most cooperative. But I do think he has a, a serious point about, why are these people asking me questions? <laughs> It's I've really done. Crazy. I've yeah. done everything. I've made all these records. I've written all these songs. What? What? What do they think I'm going to do? Break down and go? Oh, all right. I've decided to tell you right. the truth. Or even worse, let me explain this song to you. No, very rarely in the life of T. S. Eliot did somebody say, oh, "Please explain the wasteland." <laughs> That's the job. That's our job. That's Absolutely. the job. Yeah, or yeah. pleasure. Yeah. Well, look, David, thank you very much. There's the book, Holding the Note, Writing on Music by David Remnick, out now or very soon. And uh, thanks very much for talking to us. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. (laughs) 